Hello, everyone. As people are joining, uh, thank you so much for hopping on. I am Ashley, um, one half of Black Political Millennial, and Martel, aka Pierre Defecto, the other half of Black Political Millennial. Yes, and we have an, an amazing guest with us here today, the Summer Lee, the state representative for Pennsylvania out of District 34. Um, let's definitely shout her out. <laughs> up. Um, Thanks for having me. Of course, we are so glad to have you. Um, so the way we typically get started with our podcast, um, I have a clip that kind of, um, not kind of, but basically is the reason why we're on today. Um, so I'm going to... Before, Ash, before you play that clip, we want to say this podcast is prepared by Ashley Martell in her personal capacity and the expressions, the opinions expressed on this show are the host own and do not flex any of our personal affiliations. So I want to put that out there real quick before we That's guys. right. That's our disclaimer. We got to let y'all know. Thank you for our thoughts. Keeping our us, yes, keeping us here. So here we go. I'm about to share my screen so we can pull up this clip. And then we're going to get started after we play the clip. Okay. Oh, uh oh, I'm in trouble. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I it's will. A, it's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black, it don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. I would love to see Take a look at my record, man. I extended the voting racks 25 years. I have a record that is second to none. The NAACP has endorsed me every time I run. The war, I mean, come on. Take a look at the record. All right, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Anyway, thanks. I will come back. All right. I look Please. forward to seeing you in person. Okay, absolutely. Okay. All right, so that is it. That is the clip that uh, I don't know about you all, but I know when, when I finally got a chance, I watched the whole interview. Um, I was I was shocked because I thought he had, you know, I mean, I know he's Joe Biden, but I thought he had a little more coup. Um, yeah. But yeah, he said it. And I said, oh, I can't wait to see the backlash because it is coming. So let me just start, Ray, because this is, this is a controversial thing. And I want people to, who are watching to know that the what we are about to talk about and just this conversation that if we're, if we're going to have the conversation we're going to have, you know, this is going to be a very thoughtful conversation. Um, it is not, the conversation is about only what it is about. And I think that we have to start by recognizing that we um, can discuss difficult things, um, even in the middle of a, even in the middle of, a, of an election cycle, that um, as part of our democracy, we have to be able to analyze um, what candidates are doing, we have to be able to analyze what the party is doing and what the system is doing. And sometimes all three of those things are working in concert. Um, but I think it's important that we have the space 
to talk honestly and openly about what's happening, um, but to really then dissect uh, what it means. And I think that's what I want to be able to do is like, what does this mean? Um, how do we move from here? So I don't want people to think that, you know, I'm here or anybody's here to just get caught up on, you know, the common itself. I know that tonight I want to, if whatever I talk, I'm going to be talking about the phenomena as a whole, not just that one comment, because it's important to recognize this is not an isolated comment and he is not an isolated candidate within this system. So that's where I want to start. Responsible, you know, that's how you have responsible. That's my disclaimer. <laughs> yes, I mean, I think that's just the point of why we want to do it because a lot of times when, you know, these things pop up with any kind of uh, candidate because it happens in different ways, um, it, it, it is just a big headline instead of us having a responsible conversation where we can learn from it and then uh, discuss what steps are we going to begin to take so we can stop having that conversation so we can learn why it's problematic and where it comes from so uh, it I didn't think we were gonna I didn't think day after we were gonna do this but I was all for it this morning when this uh, sparked off so um, we need space for nuance and and I think that too often people have looked at the phenomenon of the phenomena of Trump and they have decided that we no longer should be a nation where we have critical thinking, uh, where we have room for nuance. And I think that we can focus and keep our eyes on the ultimate prize of, you know, fighting back against tyranny, um, ensuring that Trump does not get elected, reelected. But the only way that we can do that is if we are having these conversations, if we are holding you know, the party accountable for the work that they are going to need to do ultimately to turn out voters. And the reality is, is that you have to turn out voters to win. If the Democratic Party is going to win, the pathway to defeating Trump is through the Black community, is through Black voters. Uh, so this is a conversation that we have to be able to have in earnest, but folks gotta let us have it. I know that it makes people uncomfortable. It makes people uncomfortable to think uh, because what we've been thinking of, we've been so singular focused on defeating Trump that now people are afraid that any sort of blip in the road is just going to fuel Trump. So they wouldn't, and we haven't been able to have these conversations. But if we had these conversations in December of 2016 and have been having them ongoing since then, perhaps we might be in a different spot right now. Um, but we have for the last four years seen kind of almost a self-obstruction from allowing ourselves to, to have those critical and nuanced conversations, from allowing ourselves to push back um, on the party apparatus. Um, but I want to say before we even start, the argument that it's either him or Trump, this conversation has nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go into deeper than that because recognizing that if we can already set that aside, that this is him or Trump, which is not necessarily true, but whether it is or not, if we can set that aside, then let us have the conversation. Let us talk about the Democratic Party. I said this morning that the Democrats have a Black people problem and Black people have a Democratic Party problem. Mm -hmm. And it's time that we talk about that. So with, with this presidential election and you know the number of things that are at stake and we're dealing with um, a party that, like you said, needs us, um, how do we navigate when we are, I mean, that was offensive at the end of the day. So people are offended. Some people are um, angry. Some people just find humor in it. But how do we take that and then, how do we take that and then move to like the next step? Like what, what do we do next as a people, as a community that has to, you know, 
upcoming elections or primary elections. So that's still not, you know, mm -hmm. immediate uh, focus. But how, how are we moving after this? What are the conversations that we're doing when we're talking to people about being registered and going out to vote? Um, and it is presidential, but then the down ticket, you know, how, what does that look like? Because it's like, we're, we're fighting ourselves because you have some folks that are like, we just got to vote because we got to get Trump out. And you got other people that are like, well, what, but what am I voting for? Like, what, what's going to help me? What's going to be better? So for me, I think we have to recognize that multiple things can be true at once. What he said was offensive. What he said for some people was humorous. You know, what he said for some people was innocuous. Um, and recognizing that just because one black person thinks that something was innocuous does not uh, negate the fact that another black person found it to be offensive, found it to be problematic. I can say uh, that I certainly found it to be problematic, not necessarily because he said it, let's be real. He is not, he may be the first person to say it, he might be the first one to have the gall to say it out loud. But the, what I actually found offensive was not necessarily the phrase, you ain't black. It wasn't him putting on his best black scent to say it, um, which is offensive in and of itself. You know, white folks defining what blackness is is a, is a tale as, uh, as old of time. And, and, that's, and that's a conversation that could be had about who even defines our blackness and who gets yeah. to be a gatekeeper of our blackness. But the real problem that I'm seeing with this, and I think that maybe it's getting lost, is that this is a, a, a thought that is you know, pervasive in the Democratic Party, that the black vote and the black voter is going to be there. And because we know that the black voter is going to be there, we don't have to do the work of courting them. We don't have to do the work of incorporating them. And that's been my experience. And that's what I think that we need to get through if we're going to really talk about how we can build a successful, successful coalition uh, to defeat Trump, but not just defeat Trump, but to defeat what, what created Trump. Um, yeah. And we have to get real about that. Yeah. So when we think about him saying, you know, you ain't black if you don't vote for me, you know, there are a lot of people who say, well, we say that at home. You know, we say that at our dinner table. We say that the, the black Republicans ain't right. Be that as it may. We know that the question isn't between black folks voting for him or Trump. The question is between black folks voting for him and staying home. And if we want black people to go to vote, that we, non-voters, sometimes voters, swing voters who are black, have every right and deserve to be courted and incorporated just like a white moderate voter. Yep. And that's what the Democratic Party has done for too long. You know, they'll come to the black community once every two or four years, they hit up the churches, and what they do is they just say, Hey, they remind us, you know, well, the GOP is racist. Um, but when it comes to actually engaging Black people, we need to talk about how can the Democratic Party engage Black people in a more authentic way and a more respectful way. Because what he uh, um, betrayed is a, a, is a disrespect of yep. Black voters. So when we're talking about how do you engage us more respectfully, you know, they'll come to the churches and tell us that you can't vote for the GOP, so what you're going to do. But they'll go to, you know, the Midwest and they'll lay out the red carpet for, for what we call swing voters when the swing voter is white and moderate or conservative. They'll put money into them. They'll pour resources into, into courting them and turning out the vote amongst them. They'll incorporate them and center them in their policy discussions. Um, and all of that is because they know that they will go to the Republicans otherwise. So they'll change their whole policy platform to incorporate them, but they don't do that to us. And I think that's where we need to center the conversation. That's how we start to decide, where do we go next? How does the Democratic Party engage Black voters in a way that is more, is mutually respectful and mutually beneficial? What does courting look like? Yeah, that was, that was my question too. What does you that know? look like? And also, I think somewhere, if you could go into that after the courting is, how, how do those changes begin to happen? 
because I think a lot of people are kind of like stuck, feeling like stuck, right? Because you're not going to go red, but we, we live in a state that has a closed primary, mm-hmm. right? So there's, they feel like there's no other option. Some people feel like they're bullied to be blue. So what, what has to happen or what can't happen or how do we begin, begin that? From- yeah. I think when we talk about authentic engagement and courting, you know, courting black voters, um, I think there are models for that. Anybody who is the base of your party, and I think it's undeniable right now that, you know, black folks are the base of the Democratic Party. Um, to be very specific, black women are the base of the Democratic Party. Uh, but black men d- vote in almost as frequent numbers as we do. So any other time somebody is the base of your party, you know, you see more candidacies from those folks. You see the party starting to incorporate them into their ranks better. Um, we're not seeing that with black women at all, and you don't have to look any further than me and how I've been treated in this party. But setting that aside for a second, because I'm sure we'll get to that. When we talk about uh, courting Black voters and and, and a party making up your base, the only authentic way that anybody can can court a voter is by actually engaging them in good faith with the hopes of them engaging back. So for us, we're talking about policy points. What are the policies that various Black communities need, recognizing that that saying that we're not a monolith? What What is the agenda of the Black community of Black voters, wherever they may be, um, recognizing that young black voters have a different agenda than older black voters, that rural and suburban ones have a different agenda than, than urban ones and city ones. How do we start to bring those different black perspectives to the table and actually building our platform around it? Mm-hmm. Um, building our platform and our policy pieces around the most marginalized, around the most vulnerable, um, is how you, how you court us in real life. So when we're looking at how they court moderates, not only will they put millions and millions and millions of dollars into courting the Midwestern votes, those swing states, they will pump all their money. They will have field directors into those states. They will send surrogates into those states. You'll see Biden, Obama, Michelle Obama will be in there. Um, everybody who they think can get a crowd and bring them, they will descend upon white moderate swing voters. Uh, but when it comes to black voters, there's just not that effort. There isn't that effort to, to, to critical engagement. So yeah. I think if we're talking about the number of ways that we can engage, A, we should see more support for Black candidacies, for Black leadership. Um, don't just ask us for our vote. Ask us how they can support us. Yeah. Make it a two-sided thing. Um, you need, we need to support your leadership just like you have supported ours for so long. That is a mutual exclusive thing. That is, we are respecting your community and we're respecting your vote by also saying that your vote is so valuable to us that you deserve some more seats now. Um, that's one way. Uh, pouring in resources to turning out Black vote. Um, that's another thing. But without real critical policy considerations, without thinking about the policies through a Black lens, an equitable Black lens, then we're not talking our language. And I think Black people are so used to, you know, hearing the right things and sometimes hearing the right talking points or hearing the right accent or saying it in the right venue. Uh, but we know that come the day after election, we're going to be put back on the back burner. Um, but I think we need to talk about what are the policies today, maybe between us three, we should start talking about what are the policies yeah. that are important to Black communities that we should talk about. We need to talk about Medicare for all. We need to talk about environmental justice and ending environmental racism. We need to talk about workers' rights and workers' protection. You know, we have to walk, uh, talk about transportation justice. We have to talk about housing justice. We need to talk about educational equity at the federal level. We need to talk about student loan debt. We need to talk about how Black people are more likely to take on the bear the burden of student loan debt. Those are our issues that progressives talk about. But what Black people know is, is that while progressives talk about it in a general way, we also need y'all to talk about it in a race-specific way. 
And that's what I think Black voters need to, to feel like they're truly being valued, you know, as, as, as a base and a critical part of the Democratic Party. I think, I think the key point you just brought up, well, initially saying like what we need in courting us and us as Black folks changing the thought process of we need to be looking to someone and while we don't look more into ourselves being capable of taking you know positions running for seats and having that organic connection to the community because that is their community um i think you know prior to me running um I, I personally never thought about like, oh, I could run for office. Like all the things I did in college, you know, doing uh, local government in school when we were in, in high school, you know, sitting on student council and, you know, as much as we did all of that, it still never clicked to me like, mm -hmm. oh, but you could run for office. Like we always heard, oh, I want to be president one day, but that just sounded good. We yeah, didn't the real yeah, the real understanding of what power um, looks like when you're actually holding seats. And then when we do run, I, I think what also blew my mind was hearing, you know, uh, my white friends and uh, colleagues and people that I work with say things like, oh, well, yeah, my uncle was this and my mom did that. And, my, and I'm like, I didn't grow up with a, aunt, a cousin, a mom's friend who was sitting in an elected position. So for me, we, we have to continue to keep these conversations going and showing up mm -hmm. so that we can see ourselves in these spaces and also these kids that are, I, I love these like high school graduates that are coming out now because they, they are um, unapologetic. And so we want to empower them to know that it is now your time to start taking control of the future that we wanna see because for so long we've been living uh, the decisions of our our parents and our parents parents and so things are different so we've got to start feeling like this conversation involves us we always like well that's not for me or i don't pay attention to it because i just i don't understand it like we need to yeah, that's, that is all by design that's all yeah. so we have these conversations so people don't feel like it's not about them because it is but also but here's the other thing right so look a lot of this is a paradigm shift we need to have a paradigm shift um, this is like the, the what came first, a chicken and an egg. Will black people engage more in voting when they vote first or when they run first? How do you engage them when the, when the system still feels broken? Um, that's a very real consideration. But the first thing that we need to do is recognize that like, A, I want to talk about vote shaming. Yeah. And like when we get into like this whole Joe Biden situation and him saying like, you ain't black if you don't vote for me and, and just all of the implications of how the Democratic Party has been engaging black voters and the black and black non-voters, um, I think too often we are ready to indict ourselves. Like we're ready to fight each other. We are ready to fight each other for the right to empower somebody who is not going to then center us. Yeah. And at, at our core, we need to acknowledge that that's what's happening. And you know, when you can be the brightest, smartest person, you can be us, all of us who are engaged in politics, all of us who work in government in some way, the three of us, but still recognize that there is some truth to what the non-voter has to say. We can simultaneously know and recognize how important voting is if we are doing all of these things. But voting in and of itself is not important. Voting in and of itself is not the power. Because if you can only vote for one person who will not do anything for you and another person will not do anything for you, and to be clear, I am not saying that's the case now 
or, or not. I'm simply using as an example, but yeah, it's a that, reality. That is the paradigm, right? When you are, when, when, if, if that is your option, then that is no option at all. And I always say, when people say, well, your ancestors had to write, die for you to have the right to vote. I'm like, that's not true. My ancestors died for us to have the right to have the same sort of access to power, to autonomy, you know, to building communities and to having control over our communities. That's what they died for because you can't convince me that they died for me to have the right to vote for, you know, Mitt Romney or, or Donald Trump. They most certainly did not, you know, shed no blood for us to be able to do that. They died for us to have the right to vote for you, Ashley. Yes. So for us to have the right to vote for you, Martel. You know, they died for us to have access for us to have, you know, representation. That's what we need to talk to. And when we start by saying you need to vote, um, and then next time we can fix the system. Next time we can talk about the deep-seated issues. Next time is to, when, every time we do that, we're silencing somebody. And when we silence black voters or marginalized voters who do have very well concerns, what we're doing is we're, prior, we're prioritizing comfort um, over justice. We're expecting the same people to consistently make the sacrifices um, on behalf of the, of the people who are accustomed to having their political needs, their economic needs met. And that's what's happened. That's what happened with our primary. We saw the people who are most accustomed to having their political needs, their political ideology centered, um, dictating to those of us who aren't used to having our political needs met and centered, um, and telling us that we should sacrifice. That's unity over solidarity. That is the difference between unity and solidarity. What we need in our political system is some solidarity. And the first way that we can do that is to when you get that urge to vote shame somebody, to tell them that their ancestor died, to tell them that they're stupid for not voting, listen to them. Stop for a second. Is what they're telling you true? Is it not true that for a lot of black people, they have not seen their communities change? Because that's very true. Is it not true that for, for so many black people, for a lot of communities, they only see the politician, you know, at the church, you know, every four years. Is that not true? Is it not true that they watched how I've been being treated, how you have been treated, how other black and brown folks in office have been treated? Is that not true? You know, is it not true that our system, our two-party duopoly has not benefited us? Is that not true? Um, because then once you start to actually think about their reasoning, what you do is, is you shift your tactic. Because again, two things can be true. It can be true that they are right and you are right at the same time. And then when we recognize that we both are right and we both have a perspective that is useful, useful, we now switch our tactics. So for them, what they need to recognize is that voting is a tool, but that tool, you know, is not the end all be all. For us, what we need to recognize is that the system is a problem and that if we're not using the tool to change the system, then what are we using it for? If we're not using voting as a, as a mechanism and a tool to build power for marginalized communities, then why are we using it? Um, so now we need to shift from always telling black people to vote. That's the first thing. Black people, you need to vote, you need to vote, you need to vote. I remember I was somewhere and, and a gentleman who I respect was like, you know what, we urge black people to vote in every election. I stood up and I said, sir, who is urging black people to run in every election? Because until we're doing that, you know, then we're just building power for other communities. And we have to recognize that that's a very real grievance. Um, and it's okay to acknowledge that. It's okay to acknowledge the shortcomings of our system. But what we need to stop doing is indicting each other and blaming each other and start to blame the system. Yeah. People don't vote because of the system. They're not voting because they're stupid. They're not, not voting because they don't care. They're voting because they're discouraged, because they've been disenfranchised, because they, they are a victim of an overly complicated system. And it's okay to acknowledge that. Yeah. And I think that that's the way that we start to actually get people to vote, is by respecting and acknowledging the way they view this. Because it, it's, like, it's valid. I mean, it, it's a problem. And if we, if we keep 
bringing more of us into it, we will see. I think every every year after we vote, you know, because I poll watch and we look at the numbers and you see how many people are showing up and how many people are registered. It's like the, the work that needs to be done to get those people to either see themselves and, and see that uh, if I get up and go and, and vote, um, this person that I'm always seeing or I'm always talking to or is always showing up, um, it's, it's like, it's like a fire kind of like, like how, how you, when we, when we knocked doors for you two years ago, you know, like, I think that like, after I did it for myself and some other candidates, when we did it for you, um, it was, it was different because there were so many conversations that we had with people who literally told us to our faces and all of them didn't even look like us, you know? So it's not like, it's just a, you know, we're the only ones not getting reached. We're just, you know, the what's best for black voters is what's best for the country. Yeah. When we center the most marginalized, we will create a better society. When we recognize that the reason why we don't have healthcare for all, when the reason why we don't have education, free quality education for all is because we've not taken done the courageous work of reconciling our racial past. When we're able to get through that, we'll recognize that the policies that would have helped black people, and we're seeing that with COVID-19, the policies that would have helped black people, that would have saved black lives uh, during COVID-19, that would have saved disabled lives during COVID-19, those marginalized people will save all of us. The economic policies that will lift black people out of uh, you know, economic disparities or the same policies you know, that will help and lift all of the middle class. Um, but we have that mentality where we are so afraid of reconciling our racial past that we just want to brush black, anything that is black, anything that has a black label on it under the rug. Um, and that is our, that's the political issue that we're facing right now. Because even the Trump phenomenon is an inability to look at, at self, is to reflect self. We would rather focus on Trump exclusively than focus on the, the me. Focus on how somebody in my household how somebody who looks like me, have lived life like me, has created this system, has created Trump. Yeah. That is the harder thing to look at. It's easier to look at Trump than to look at self. It's easier to look at him as an outlier and anomaly than look at him as a product of the United States of America. He is a product of the American dream. Um, and that is a harder thing to look at because that takes some serious courage and introspection. Um, that's the same problem we're facing with the Democratic Party. To think that we have in some way that this party has in some way failed the very people who form its base is a very complicated thing. It's a very complicated, and, and, it, and it brings up very complicated emotions. Um, Martel, what you got to say? Where you, where you at? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, yo, you spitting, first of all. <laughs> you are, and everybody I'm, in the I'm comments like, is like. Everybody in the comments. When oh, you got comments? I didn't even realize. The heart just be coming up. The heart just be coming up. Yeah, so you I, are literally. I got a new hashtag. Summer spitting. <laughs> Real talk. So I started that. That started here. But I'm, I'm <laughs> um, what you're touching on. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that we were able to create this this avenue for you and a space for you for you to be able to discuss these things. Um, and I, I wonder. about these things. I didn't get this stuff from thought. Yo, meditate it and let it marinate. And now it's Memorial Day and we about to cook it. You know what I'm saying? But we were able to start Black Political Millennials, right? Because we're able to create a space to have these discussions, right? But also these are people where people that look like us are interested in these things, but they have nowhere to go. 
right? They have nowhere to turn to because they can go to certain networks and you'll talk about young people, but you won't talk about people of color. You won't talk about people that are poor. You won't talk about people that live in uh, divested communities. You'll just talk about young people, right? Mm -hmm. So there's not really spaces for us to have these conversations with somebody that has the knowledge like you, Summer, to come here and really talk about it. So for a second, I was just sitting back like, yo, bars right quick. Like, I kind of forgot that I was on here with y'all. <laughs> Like, damn, like, summer's going in. Um, but I think you said that we were going to get into it. I think we've already got into the black vote and being black. One thing that I wanted to, to touch on is just briefly going back to ain't black is that our culture is being trivialized so much that people can create a joke and you have people of other races, right, that feel like it's okay. Feel comfortable. Yeah. Right. For you, Hillary did it two years ago. Yeah, to be able to determine how black you are, right? So people mm -hmm. live their whole lives with this thing. We have to identify that people go through their lives dealing with whether they're black enough yep. or too black, right? So now it comes a point where people are making a, a joke about this, and 24 hours later, you have a shirt that people are, I'm sure, buying now. Yeah, you ain't black. Yeah. So it's, it's the issue that the, my thing is our culture has been consumed so much and it's consumed so fast and it's just it comes out the other end so quickly you know like mm -hmm. so it's our culture and then somebody in china sells it right back to us right mm -hmm. that's capital that's racial capitalism right that happens every day and it's happening now with the shirt so i think my issue is we have to begin to respect our culture ourselves where it's like yo we can't let certain things slide because yo outside of us you don't understand what it is to be black Right. And we've all had different experiences in the spaces that we've been in about being black. Yeah. Right. Schools that we've gone to, the jobs that we had, the extracurriculars that we have. We've all had to do that. And everybody on here, the almost 50 people on here have gone through that, too. So I don't I don't. The one thing is I don't want us to lose that. We have to talk about we have to have that conversation, too, where it's not OK, I'm here. you know, for people to make jokes about our culture and being black enough, you know, yeah. um, People are kind of taking it like, well, it's not that deep. And, you know, it was a bad joke. And it's foot in his mouth. I get it. But it's the comfortability. Yeah. Of the you yeah. know what I'm saying? That, that joke came from a space. Yeah. Right. And that's what we want to address, that that joke came from a space. Yeah. And it's, again, it's possible to talk about what happened and use him as kind of a proxy right now. Joe Biden is just a proxy for a conversation that we should have been having. Because I think all three of us know that we have all had our blackness questions at some point that we've either been not black enough or too black. I've been all those things. I have simultaneously been not black enough and too black. Yeah. I have a friend who, when I was in high school, she used to call me a white panther because I was, <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird thing, right? Because, you know, I come off as so kind of radical in my blackness, but also I was a band geek. I was, you know, I, Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and sci-fi. And, you know, I think that when we think about what is black, if we're just going, if we even want to pivot to that, like what is black? Black is, you know, multitudinous. Black is, you know, it's expansive. It's, it's, it's limitless. There are as many ways to express and be Black as there are Black people to express and be. Um, and that is a concept that we've struggled with, especially Black Americans, because we've been told our education system, our, our, um, our indoctrination has been that Black folks don't have culture even though our culture is underlying all of American culture. So we have been convinced that we don't have culture. So I bet, I bet every single black kid who's been to a college campus has heard at some point from a white kid, you know, if we don't listen to Tupac or something that, oh, I'm blacker than you. 
you know? So that's why it resonated so much with a certain group of people when he said that, because we heard it before, because he wasn't the first person we heard it from. But when we talk about blackness and voting, that's also important. When we talk about the two-party duopoly, what it does is it confines black people because at the end of the day, our choice is our most basic need, the need to not be oppressed racially. Um, and it means that we can't have the opportunity to think about our tertiary and our secondary needs. Um, and that's what's kind of, that's how the black vote has been confined. Um, the black vote is as diverse and as unique as any other vote, as every other community, as You're the white vote, the Catholic vote, as the as the, the woman vote, as all of those votes. But because black people know at the end of the day that our primary fight is to not be oppressed by the system, you know, we don't have time to dive into the differences that we might have culturally or regionally, the difference that we might have um, through age, the difference we might have um, economically, uh, because there are a diversity, there is a diversity of black people economically and socially and religiously. Um, and that's something that we need to talk about when it comes to politics. That's also why that was such a, a, an insidious comment, because black people are, are, we are aware of the fact that we don't have anywhere else to go. Yeah. And it was almost like a slap in the face, because it's like, because we know it, but we also can't do anything about it. Because we also, because we, while we recognize that there are critical flaws in the, in the Democratic Party, that the Republican Party will put their KKK hood on, you know, yeah. and, and march down your street, you know. So we recognize that because of the two-party duopoly that there is no space for us. Um, but it's, it, I've noticed that throughout this primary, it is like a, a weird concept for a lot of people to, to, to reconcile that there are Black people who are conservative very conservative, socially conservative, religiously conservative. Um, and there are black people who are as progressive as me. There are black people who span, you know, I would be a Republican if Republicans were not racist, all the way to communists and above and beyond. Um, and people find that hard because they forget because black people are so confined to we vote Democrat no matter what, that black people, they forget that black people can also be diverse and our ideologies, you know, and diverse and our vision for yep. what society should look like. Um, and, and that's another thing that we need to talk about. How do we create a space for, and this is not just a black voter problem. This is a problem that we're seeing increasingly um, as our generation enters, you know, political realms and a generation below us who are more inclined to have seen the failings of capitalism, um, have seen or felt a certain type of way from religious establishment, some of us, um, have seen the failings of our education system, have seen the failings of our healthcare system, and have vastly different political beliefs than the generations who are still kind of holding on to power. But that, that ain't gonna last. So at some point, the system is gonna snap. It's just a matter of, are you going to do it on our behalf or not? Today, just real quick though, when I was in my last forum, you know, we were talking about, you know, um, how do we engage younger voters? And they were saying, well, you know, you guys got to get involved. You got to, you know, you can't complain if you don't get involved. Yada, yada. I was like, you know, or if you want to change things, you have to get it to change it. You know, you can't change it from the outside. But I was like, at what point do we say, I recognize that the black community has a problem and I'm going to change it before they even ask me to, because I know that it needs changed. Why do we have to demand human rights at this point in the year of our Lord 2020? Human. Why do we have to demand, you know, equity? Yeah. Why did we have to demand equity before COVID-19 hit? Why did we have to demand testing to be in black communities when we are being disproportionately affected? You know, why do we have to remind you, remind anybody, remind the party, you know, that our communities have been systemically divested, that 
the the property tax scheme for education is intentionally set up to keep black people and cyclical racism and cyclical in, in, uh, inequality. Why do we have to remind you that? Yeah. Why do we have to be there? Mm -hmm. You should do it on our behalf because you claim to represent us. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the flaw in the thinking there. That's the flaw when people say, if you don't vote, you can't complain. Yes, you can. Does that mean that 16 year olds can't complain? Yeah. They don't get a vote. Nope. But they still have, you know, they still have thoughts and beliefs and understanding. They get it. Mm -hmm. You can absolutely complain if you don't vote. And you can vote while you're complaining. And you can do both at the same time. All right. <laughs> All right. Oh, man. Summer. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, Martel. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, like, there's just so many nails being hit on the head right now. Um, but I think it's important to everybody that's listening is to share this conversation with somebody um, because we we less than two weeks out, but we close to two weeks out from our PA primary. Um, and if you're not a PA, you know what I mean? I hope that you're able to mail in your vote and vote wherever state you're at because these issues that we're talking about are not just in Pennsylvania. These are issues that are happening all over our country um, and a lot of other countries as well. You know what I mean? When it comes to the issues of people that are being marginalized, and usually those people are black people, people of color. Um, so I feel like we have to make sure that people, a lot of times, I feel like some people are in a silo where it's like, well, I haven't experienced this or this hasn't happened to me, so I don't have to go hard for this cause. Or nobody, I know got beat up by the police, so I don't have to go hard for this, right? So I think we have to, we have to step out of that, that mind state where just because it didn't happen to me and mine, I'm okay or you're okay. And I feel like that's kind of the mind state where we're at. And I think that trickles down to some of the things we're talking about, like voting right now, right? Where you have some people that vote on issues, you know? You have people that vote on platforms. You have people that vote on people based on these certain things, not just because of their last name or because of their party or they go to their church, but because of this certain issue, they vote on those things. So I think it's important that Black people, we find those things out too, you know what I'm saying? And we figure that out. That goes with what you're saying somewhere about when you ran on a list of issues, is we have to start finding people that address those those issues that we have, and that's on our platform. And we have to get out of the popularity contest. We have to get out of, oh, this person was given hot chocolate. You know what I'm saying? Like, we have to go to, what are people going to do after they get their vote? I feel like, um, to kind of go back to the courting thing, right? I feel like we only experienced the early part of courting but nothing else, you know? So they'll tell you good stuff and they'll hold your hand in a prayer and they'll plant a tulip in the community garden. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But then we don't we don't see any other we don't see anything else. You know what I'm saying? Like you said, the corpus not rolled out. We're, our issues aren't ever taken serious. Mm -hmm. Right? So I feel like sometimes subconsciously we kind of just let our issues go to the back, right? We have to, we become okay with this person came to my neighborhood. We become okay with. They were nice to me. Shout it out. Yeah, they were nice to me. They but, bought me turkeys. Yeah, you know because, what I'm saying? Yeah, they bought me turkeys because sometimes when you aren't having your basic needs met, that turkey means the world to you. Yeah, exactly. You know, and then also I think that goes to our expectations as well, right? And I think some of you touched on this too is we have to begin to expect more. You know, like the turkey can't be enough. You know what I'm saying? Like the calendar can't be enough. Oh yeah, I love turkey. But that that the calendar can't be enough to get this vote. 
-hmm. right? Because the next time in another four years, I'm going to be an adult. I'm going to be super grown. Or the next four years, I'm going to have a house. I'm going to have children. Mm -hmm. X amount more money on bills. And I have to be, you have to be thinking about me four years from now. And I think that's something that we have to start to do, right? Is have to start touching on what we need. Latrenda said, what about skin folk? Latrenda. That's a skin. <laughs> no, you know what? But that's an important, Latrenda, that's an important conversation, right? Because even as we're talking about how do we get more Black folks in office, uh, we also have to recognize that if, you're, if, you're, if your main goal is to get in to fit into the system, then what, what, what difference do you have to offer us than the white folks who are already in it? Mm-hmm. And that's important. It's important to know as we are as we're like as we are becoming more a more educated electorate on politics politically, which we are. Um, we're going to start to gain that discernment. You know, you're going to start to be able to realize the folks who got in because they want to advance their career, or they got in because they wanted personal power from those people who got in because they wanted to empower, uh, because right. they wanted to use that role to empower you know other folks in their community and. We are, and, that, and, and we went through the process. We had to go through this process. You got to recognize the first black people, and I get it, right? You know, I get it. I'm a progressive. I'm, I'm as, probably as left as you want to get in anybody's state level anywhere uh, right now. But I do recognize that there are some people who came before me um, who had to do th- things differently to get into office. They had to befriend people who I didn't have to. They had to, you know, they had to go with the, you know, with the, with the, with the knife and they had to literally cut down the forest to get there. So they had to take deals that we didn't have to, that I didn't have to take. They had to make friends that I had to take. They had to rely on people's donations, who donations I didn't have to rely on. And I get that. They had to get in differently than I had to. What I wish they did get though is that we don't have to do it that way anymore. Hmm. That they kicked the door down now and now we have license. To, to pivot. Now we have license to be us unapologetically. Um, we have license to run as us, to, to, to be uncompromising in being us. Um, otherwise, we don't need to be there. Um, but they still also need the grace, a little bit of grace to make that pivot. Or we also need to say, you know, brother, I'm happy that you serve. Thank you for your service. But we also need you to step aside now so that we can take this baton. It's one of those two things. And there is a way, of, a respectful way of doing that. But we also have to find that respectful way of doing that. Uh, to let them know that we value and we understand the sacrifice and the way that you had to do things. But listen, we're going in a different direction now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want us, and that's something that we need to talk about as a black community, how we're going to do that. Yeah. So, and I think also it's important that um, that older generation to respect us and us having the ability to carry that baton. Because I feel like sometimes what happens is there's an age, a ageism or ages that kind of comes into play too, right? Where it's like, well, We've been doing this for 40 years. And I'm like, we appreciate that amount of time. Mm-hmm. But you have to trust that we've learned from you and we've learned from your generation and we can make these moves now, right? We're the next leg of the race and we're going to carry the baton and make sure that we get across the finish line. But you got to trust us with that baton. And I think that's another important conversation that we have to have because we, we could talk about gatekeepers. And then we can go to gatekeepers and skin folk because there are skin folk that are gatekeepers that are keeping young people from making these moves happen. Listen, you, you, you're saying it and Summer, know, Summer knows how I feel. I think my whole time in office, I always said grandmas can get it too. Because at the end of the day, when we get into these positions and we're all here trying to uh, make decisions that are better for our young people today, 
to the point of our these these gatekeepers that don't want to release the power or they they feel like oh I, I still got it in me it's like yeah you do and I want to have I want to have my elders here that I can call back on talk through things because they have been through things that I just can't even understand but when it comes down to some things with these kids we can't talk about what worked in 1960 and think it's going to work for our kids in 2020 like it's just not reality and a lot of times we waste time having conversations like that because we can't even trust each other. We can't even respect the differences of where we're coming from and understanding like, okay, you have a point. Okay, um, I have a point. How do we bring it together? I mean, my first year, I, I consistently had to buck back just so it wasn't like, oh, you can sun me, you know, because I am old enough to be your granddaughter. And that's, yeah. Personally, yeah, personally, what, I, what I'm seeing is, um, and that's the other thing when we're talking about, as, as the Black community grows um, in our political power, um, which will then, of course, naturally segue into growing in economic and all that, but as we're growing at, um, as political, as a political community, um, we're going to start to see now more what a lack has done to us, what a lack of power, what a lack of proximity to the power has done to us. Um, we're used to, in our community, um, fighting, having to fight each other for a, a scarcity of, of, of seats. So even when you think about Western Pennsylvania, you know, Philly is nothing like Western Pennsylvania. In Philly, they have, you know, a dozen at least black representatives. In Pennsylvania, in, in Western Pennsylvania, we only had two before me and Austin got in. You know, a lot of people talk about how I'm the first black woman, but Austin is also the, the first black person outside of the city. So we double the amount of black people in our delegation and me and Sarah doubled the amount of women we had in our delegation. So when you think about black political empowerment in Pittsburgh, you know, no black mayor, we've never had a black mayor, we've never had a black woman serve as in Congress, we've never had a woman serve as a US Senator. Um, we are accustomed to fighting for those same two seats, Ads and Jake's. <laughs> those are our state house seats. You know, Daniel Lavelle's and Reverend Burgess's are our city seats and that's it. Yeah. So when they saw someone like me and, and me and Austin saying that, you know, where there is a black person, there is a black district, you know, just like where there is a Latinx person, there is a Latinx district, you know, looking at it that way is a shift in, it is a shift in perspective. Um, but where we have been made to always fight for things, I recognize that when I first ran two years ago, there were a lot of like our black elders who were not quick to jump on board. Ooh, and it was for a couple of reasons, and I recognize that. One of them was that, you know, we have a situation where there were a lot of excellent, you know, Black folks who came from my grandma's generation who they wanted to run for office. You know, they wanted to be Congress people and state reps, um, but they've been dissuaded. They have been beat down. Um, they recognize that the, the, the old boys network operated so strong back then that there was very little they can do. Um, so there was that self-preservation there like if i couldn't do it what makes you think you can do it mm -hmm. um and i get that but also there's the proximity to power when we've accepted that it will never be us who's the president we are okay being the chief of staff you know we take pride in being you know the the valet we take pride in being wherever as close as we can get to those positions of power because all we've had is a proximity to it so we have to talk about what does our black political agenda look like as we shift from a mere proximity to power to actually seizing power. We go from fighting the power to taking the power and being the power. Um, and that's the collective conversation that we need to have. 
Um, but I wanted to go back to the point about, you know, how powerful the black vote is. What I've been seeing around these conversations around this whole Biden situation specifically, but also just this whole um, presidential election that we've been having this year, is that every time black people mention that we might withhold our vote, and I ain't saying that we should, not at all. But what I'm saying is, is what I've been seeing. People say that we might withhold our vote when people talk about the numbers with black people. I was talking to Ashley earlier, and the reason why Obama won, when Obama won, Black people were the highest turnout demographic of all demographics. No community voted at higher rates than Black people. When Trump won, what happened was is that the Black vote dropped by dropped seven, seven points, the white vote rose one point, and Trump got in. The Black vote dropped by seven points, and the Republicans won. Um, that's power. So every time we say something like, we're a piss that, that Joe Biden would dare fix his mouth to say that we ain't black if we don't do what he says, or that he would dare call us clean and articulate, or he would dare eulogize, you know, strong throat, whatever it may be. Anytime we say that, there is a group of people who recognize that we can actually change the system today. And that's frightening. That's scary to think that the only thing it would take, and it's not the only, because I don't want you to think it's only, it's big, that's major, to think that the black vote itself we could decide collectively to change the way the system works. We could decide on today that if you do not have um, reparations or whatever, if you do not have health care for all, if you do not have education for all, if you do not have you know, workers' rights for all, if you do not have housing justice, um, if you do not have rent control, whatever it may be, whatever those policies, those economic and those educational policies we need, if you do not make education you know, a fundamental right in this country, whatever it may be, if we collectively decided that that's what we wanted the platform to be, um, it would have to be that. But what they do is, is they start to try to scare us, right? They're like, this is at the time, or you shouldn't talk about that right now, or if you just wait, we'll talk about that later. Every time someone does that, what they're doing is recognizing the power that we have here to shift things. And that's frightening. The power that we could actually change our electoral system, even for those people who say that they want to change it, oh, that's still frightening because this country has worked for so long for people. Why do you think that there are so many like um, people who are upset, like even women, white women, who are upset now that Trump exists? Because they are accustomed to the political system bending to their will. Mm -hmm. They ain't used to that system not working their way. Mm -hmm. They're not used to it. So when we think about how frightening it could be to think that we are on the cusp of a new society, that we are in a transition to a new society, um, that everything we're seeing right now is by design, even as we're seeing, you know, Trump and the, the movement that's around him is all here to reveal what we need to get to a new society in America. That's frightening. It's frightening to think that what has been comforting to us, the system has comforted many people. You know, the system has, um, has been there as a safety net for very many people. And to think that that system that you have so, that has been so good to you, that has been so almost like a mother to you, is actually, you know, someone else's oppressor, is actually broken in very fundamental ways, that's hard to reconcile because they see themselves in the system. Because there are so many people who look at that system and they see themselves. So when we think about changing it and, and radically changing it, and also that we could radically change it today, you know, that's frightening. So they need to start to, to, to move us to not do it. I say, let it happen. That's scary. Let it happen. Black voters, let them walk into their power. Don't deny Black voters the power that they have. Don't deny Latinx voters the power that they have. Um, because it's there, and there's nothing you can do about it. But the, the faster we learn how to wield it responsibly, the better we're going to be.
Yo. Girl, you got these comments on fire, okay? Shout out um, to the 62 people that we have in here. Um, we got State Rep Summer Lee from the 34th Legislative District here with us on Black Political Millennials. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Pierre Defecto and my co-host Ashley. Um, summer summer spitting. Um, going in, we're talking about the black vote, blackness, um, and a lot of different things. Uh, so one thing that I kind of wanted to touch on real quick, um, to kind of stick with, um, I don't even know what to call it, injustice, um, is the fact that our, our guest, our special guest, Summer Lee, um, was, was it the only incumbent that was not? Endorsed by the Allegheny County Democratic Committee, yep. And so, labor council. I mean, so and a labor council, and a labor council. So we've we've taken we me and Ashley to talk about this. You know what I mean on our podcast and offline for at least like two months, two and a half months, to be honest with you, and everybody listening, because we've been kind of fuming about this um, and the fact of just like the blatant disrespect, but then also what that speaks to, and that kind of speaks to that that racism and the sexism. You know what I'm saying, and and just how people try to play it to the back and make it like it's, they don't want to say what it, of course, never going to say what it is, but people try to make it like it's something else, right? Or people try to shine a light on another issue or try to take the focus to another person completely. So we don't have this discussion. Um, but I think that speaks to to you, Summer, and to the impact that you have. Um, and I just want to take time to give you props because um, not only you're a trailblazer, but you're a figure that we can look to as somebody that can make it happen. You know what I'm saying? Like when we talk about people running, it's discouraging and sometimes intimidating to make that run, right? So people have the dream or think about running, but then this gets in the way and the self-doubt gets in the way and then the posture syndrome gets in the way and then the systems that we all face as young black people get in the way, right? And then it's like, I'm not going to make that happen. Uh, but I think that you... Like I said, you lit a fire. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you are now somebody that we can look to as somebody that's in our age group, right? There's somebody that's that's from here, that's back here, that's making it happen, and you can win and make it happen. So I just want to give you some roses real quick and say thank you for you coming back to Pittsburgh and speaking on the people. You know what I'm saying? And 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 taking a, a thankless job and not only just trying to be in the mix and be on the ground, but still try to develop legislation. Because that's the other part of the conversation that we really haven't talked about is the importance of legislation and what that has on our future. You know what I'm saying? How that impacts us and how that impacts our children, our nieces, our nephews, our younger siblings, everybody. You know what I'm saying? But that's one thing that you're doing too. And I want to highlight that is just some of the legislation that you're trying to make happen. Um, And I think that's something that gets lost amongst people that might not really be in politics is like, well, what are, what are you doing or what is she doing? And legislation is some of the work that's being done, right? Um, and it's very progressive and it's focused on black women. You know what I'm saying? It's focused on black people. It's focused on college graduates. So I think it's important for people that are on the, on the live right now that might not really be in a politics that have been wondering, but you've made a lot happen on a legislative end in a year and a half, than a lot of people have in a couple terms. So I want to take time to salute you on that because I feel like sometimes that gets lost and everything when it comes to politics is, is the legislation. 
um, and the efforts and the work that you put into that. So I want to take that time real quick to say that, but we're going to go back to, you know what I'm saying, just how, I don't even know what to call it. I don't know what y'all call it. I just like it's disrespect, man. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. We endorse you. Yeah, <laughs> you know you're endorsed by uh, black, political, black political millennials, but no, Martel, that is 100%. Um, I think every episode I shout you out just because I'm always going to say your name so people know because Summer is here and she is still coming. Uh, we got a lot more things to do, but uh, to the point that uh, Martel was making about the work that you've been doing in like the last year and a half, it has only been... 18 months of you in this role. Um, that's one of my frustrations about this seat being a two-year seat. It is oh, yeah, that's done. It is, you are now not only campaigning, but you have a job, you're working. Um, and you recently made a Facebook status where you, you know, people like the challenge, like he said, what have you done? Well, what has she done? Um, one thing I wanna also say about your role while you're up in Harrisburg, and why it's so important that we can't lose someone like you is yes, you represent the 34th district, but your work when it's done up there is done for everyone. And your voice and your passion and your fight, you encourage other legislators to step it up. And that is what we need. Cause sometimes it might be you some, that is the catalyst that can be like, you know what? Well, if someone's gonna do it, all right, I gotta pull up, it's time. I, I can't use that. There's nobody else to back me up. You know, so you bring that to um, our state um, government and politics across the board um, that I can't, I can't afford to lose that. And this state can't afford to lose that. This region can't afford to lose that. And um, what is happening right now with your campaign, and I don't want to give too many people too much um, time on this show because they're not worth it, but you are showing the power that you have put out there in the past year and a half because of how hard people within an establishment are trying to, um, you know, misconstrue your work or trying to um, confuse the electorate. Um, and when we talk about this two-party system and, oh, vote Democrat, vote Democrat, we have to watch it because we also see this Democratic committee that represents our county you know, endorses people who support um, our current president. So I think uh, we can't allow someone who says they're a Democrat to fool us because they say they're a Democrat. Um, yeah. There's more to it than just saying you um, align to a party. Uh, so I just wanted to add that too. It's, it's, it's your legislation, it's your work, but your fight and your spirit transcends to other people that have to also do work and we it, it, it's not, you're like the accountability partner basically mm -hmm. yeah you get run up a lot <laughs> but uh <laughs> no i mean i guess that is an elephant in the room right look uh to be real i was completely unsurprised by the non-endorsements but it was still disappointing nonetheless and that brings us and that really does it brings us right back to exactly what we've been talking about in that relationship between black people um and the democratic party uh, because the reality is, is if I was anybody else with my resume, if my qualifications were on anybody else's resume, if you took the bills that I've done, the, the town halls or the efforts that I've made, if you've taken my educational background and anything else and you put that on anybody else's record, they would be not just endorsed, they would be praised, you know, they would be exalted. 
Um, they would be respected and you would never see what you saw with me. And that's just the real. Um, so to, for, for the Democratic Party of Allegheny County to have missed the opportunity, um, that, that they missed it the first time was fine, whatever, they had their excuse that they only endorsed incumbents, but that they missed it the second time um, was, not, was more indicative not of me, but of their problem with Black women. Um, that we're not seeing Black women candidacies being supported, that's a nationwide thing. It ain't just me. Like, um, where there are qualified Black women to run, we're not seeing the resources, we're not seeing the support structures, we're not seeing donations to their campaigns. Uh, we're seeing the literal democratic apparatuses uh, discourage them from running in the first place. Um, that is a phenomenon that's been happening. So it's not just me, but that they did it with me who was an incumbent was so blatant. Um, so that was deeply disappointing. And even when we think about labor, when we think about how many picket lines I've been on, the people who are actually fighting for unions for all. If you're not willing to, to, to reconcile racial justice in, in, in union work, then you're not fighting for unions for all because racial justice is a barrier to unions for all. Um, and that makes people uncomfortable. But Martel, you hit it on the head when you talk about the reason why they attack me and why they are coming so hard at me is not me that they're coming at, it's you that they're coming at, it's us that they're coming at. They're upset and, they're, and, and, and what they're trying to stop is that there, that there be somebody who has the, you know, the unmitigated gall to be in this position, not to empower themselves, but to empower a community, a marginalized community and to rise them up. Um, that there is somebody who would take the opportunity to, 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 to unite people by class um, and race, um, to take the time to have those conversations, to challenge people. You're not supposed to challenge people when you're an elected official. You're not supposed to make people uncomfortable. You're not supposed to make them reflect on, you know, their, you know, in, 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 uh, inherent biases, you know, their, uh, their implicit racism. Um, you're not supposed to make people do that. Um, you're supposed to leave things the way it is. So when they challenge me, they're challenging you. Um, because what they really want to stop is not me. They think that they're certain that if I leave here, I'll go take my law degree and I'll go somewhere else. What they want to stop is a movement um, of black and brown people realizing that they are more than just their vote, that we are more than just a vote for somebody's party, that we are more than just a vote for somebody's candidate, you know, that we actually have the power um, and the right uh, to, to lead and to run our own stuff. And that's what they're worried about. They're worried about us fundamentally taking power from them in Allegheny County, people who have had a disproportionate, a disproportionate amount of power for way too long and challenging that structure. That's what they're pissed about. Um, but when we think about like, even when people say, what have I done? Can I tell y'all, look, I've only been in office for a year. Y'all was never gonna cure cancer this year. I'm sorry. Girl. You know, I was not going to like feed the hungry, the hunger. I can't make it to every single event, you know, because there'll be people who'll be pissed off because I didn't make it to an event. And it turns out I didn't even know the event existed. And I get it. That's politics. Um, but if we are going to talk about, you know, tangible things and tangible ways that, you know, I have helped and that we have helped. Um, I have introduced 10 bills in my year and a half and four bills since the coronavirus crisis have started. And while I've also been, you know, running for office. Um, shout out to Josh and Daniel in my office in Tawanza and Victoria, because they are working and they're doing the damn thing. Um, but yeah, 10 bills in office. Um, the use of force bill, a special prosecutor bill, uh, so that when police uh, officers have a, are accused of misconduct, they're not going to a DA who they're friends with. Um, of course, uh, uh, alternative sentences for pregnant women, uh, trauma-informed care in, in, in uh, prisons, um, social workers, a social worker ratio in prison, um, the Crown Act to ban hair discrimination, um, a rent and a more a rent uh, and a, and 
uh, rent and uh, mortgage freeze, um, an, a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures, a moratorium on auto repossessions, a UBI. Um, and in addition to that, I've also co-sponsored um, in other ways, uh, bills that were put on a progressive fair share tax, uh, single parent health care, um, everything from a $15 minimum wage, uh, which we know we need more of. So I've done that. So 10 of those are my own, though. Um, in addition to the fact that I've been to three prisons in our system, because you can't say you want to end mass incarceration but not talk to them. We have, we've had two forums in the women's prisons. So we've had a forum in Muncie and a policy hearing in Cambridge Springs where the incarcerated women were the policy experts. Um, and they shared with us their expertise. We took that back and then created our Dignity for Incarcerated Women uh, package. Um, I've done a town hall on Medicare for All, environmental justice, two general town halls. I've done two senior fairs, a youth fair. Um, I've done two prisons of uh, pardons, uh, pardons uh, pathways to pardons events where people who are returning citizens get on the pathway to reclaiming their lives and getting back on track. Um, so no, I've actually been working, <laughs> you know, but aside from that, you know, what I've done, what I've really am proud of is like the intangibles. You know, we still have a Republican-held majority. They still ain't going to bring up any of our bills for, for, for a vote, and that's fine. It's not fine. It's terrible. Can you explain but, that a little bit, too? Like, fit yeah. explain that. So we have a Republican majority, and the rules state, they get to, whoever is the majority gets to pick the rules. Yes, they get to make the rules. If you're the majority, you make the rules. Um, the majority party gets to determine what bills will even be brought up for a vote. So if the speaker, Speaker Torzai, if Torzai doesn't want to bring up a bill for a vote, he just won't bring it up for a vote. Yep. And those are all my bills and almost all Democratic bills never even get brought up for a vote. Yep. Um, so there, how's that for bipartisan? Um, but aside from that, I think that we spend too much time putting emphasis on bills. Bills are important. Policies are important. But lots of people have bills that are passed that don't do anything, that functionally do nothing, but they got a bill, great. What's important, and I think the intangibles that we bring you know, or I've been able to help us change the way we talk and do politics. I've been the one who has, who, who, who's given courage and license to other legislators to take that hard vote on bills. Because um, when you say you want to end mass incarceration, it's very hard to vote no on some of those bills. Um, but you know it's the right thing to do. To be able to give them license is small. It doesn't, it's, 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 it's intangible. You can't, it's not a metric, but it is. It sets us up for the future. It sets us, it allows us to model what we are trying to create. Um, even language around shifting from minimum wage to a living wage, talking about a Green New Deal, um, talking and in, 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 in really introducing the concept of environmental racism to people who have been able to make policies um, about us, who had not heard the term environmental racism, had not heard it talked about in the ways in which we've talked about it. That's an intangible that is important. People, you know, People hate identity politics. They, they try to make identity politics seem like a bad thing, like, oh, there goes those people with their identity politics. But the reality is, is that we've been doing identity politics since 1776. The identity had just always been white and male. But as soon as the identity started to look different, as soon as the identities became female or trans or black or brown or woman or, you know, non-lawyer um, or poor, you know, that all of a sudden, you know, identity didn't matter. But identity does matter. And perspective does matter. You know, people like my opponent, like most of the people in, in our delegation, they are a dime a dozen in Harrisburg. There are 203 of them, and you will have no hard time finding a Chris Rowland. That's the first time that I've mentioned my opponent. 
ever actually <laughs> ever actually but, but, but not, not just him and that's not yeah. a shot at him at all yeah but any of them you will have no hard time finding a jay costa mm -hmm. you will have no hard time you can throw a pebble and you can hit you know a mike doyle you can throw a pebble and you can hit a dan miller or a dan frankel because that perspective is 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 overrepresented yeah you're not going to harrisburg to offer a different perspective. They're not going to Harrisburg offering a different experience. So some of them are, I mean, because then again, you know, Frankel's Jewish and there's a whole experience that comes with that. But I mean, over large, you know, it's not just about my race. It's not just that I'm black. It's not just that I'm a woman. It's not, it's not just that I'm socialist. It's not just, you know, a democratic socialist or whatever we call it these days. It's not just that I'm anti-capitalist. It's not just that I was poor. Um, it's not just that I'm from Braddock. It's not just any of those things. It's all of those things. Those things matter. They are important. They inform my identity, but they also inform the ways in which I had to navigate society. So they shape my perspective. And your perspective shapes the way that you legislate. You know, it shapes the way that you write policy. It shapes the way that you vote on policy. So to lose my um, experience would be a crime for us in Pennsylvania, not just the 34th district, but in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. that I am the only black woman to exist in Western Pennsylvania at all oh, yeah. is a crime. Uh, and for the Democratic Party to not see the value in that, that they did not see the value that we have the only black woman to have ever existed from Western Pennsylvania, the only one there right now, that they don't see a value in my perspective shows that they don't understand and they don't value us yet. Yep. Yep. Because they would have you believe that we're all the same voter, but we're not. They would have you believe that color doesn't matter in your vote and your perspective is not true. Yeah. Our race, our identity, our genders, whatever it may be, those do matter. They do absolutely matter. And the fact that they would not fight like hell to make sure that we did not lose my perspective, that they wouldn't fight with everything that they have shows that they don't value black voters yet. That they don't value the black community the way that they need to yet. Because the reality is, is that I, for some bills, I was one of only five to vote no only five to propose that there are I'm a proposing bills that no one else had thought of. And I'm not doing everything. Don't get me wrong. Y'all I ain't out here doing everything but I am doing things that no one else could do. I am offering something that no one else could offer and that we would be willing to sacrifice that to put in somebody else in office who is admitting that all they want to do is go and be a rubber stamp for the governor. That, you know, anybody that the party is okay with that shows that they don't yet, they're not yet willing to respect black voters and black communities, the ways in which they need to. And that is the problem. Oh, girl, you got these, these oh, you, got on, you got these hearts on fire. Like, it's not even a light, like, they're hearts. Like, you are just, you are legit. Like, I just can't wait. Yeah. Ugh, I'm excited. I'm, I'm because that perspective, because this is, because it means something. Because we have a lot to lose here. We have a lot to lose here. This isn't trivial. No. You know, this isn't trivial. This is life or death for, for, for communities in the Mon Valley. Yeah. Whether we black or not, that's life or death for communities in the Mon Valley. Yeah. Everybody will go to Harrisburg. Every single Democrat will go to Harrisburg and say that we need to have an equitable funding scheme. Not every legislator will go down there and say that you can put all the money you want. If you're not willing to put a culturally responsive curriculum in place, then what does it matter? If you're not willing to say that black and indigenous and queer and women's studies need to be integrated horizontally and vertically into our curriculum, that we shouldn't just be learning about black history, but we should be learning about all of our cultures and math and science and lunch and gym. All of those are an opportunity to de-eurocentralize our education, which is the real thing that we need to do to close the education gap. Yeah. 
Because even when you, when your perspective is, is that we just need, you know, more money to poor schools, that's you lacking the perspective. That's you lacking perspective. That's you showing that you'd never been that black kid who had never seen yourself reflected in your curriculum, in the staff, you know, and that matters. And, 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 and as much as we would like to admit that it doesn't matter that, you know, well, if a kid has a good teacher, it shouldn't matter if they're black or white. That's not true. Or if the kid has a good, you know, if the kid has access to an iPad, it shouldn't matter, you know, that there is no black curriculum, that there is no indigenous curriculum, that the people in our country don't mind, don't mind the fact that we don't know a single indigenous language, that most black people have not learned anything about indigenous people and we are sitting up on their land. That's a problem. So no, that's what we mean when your perspective matters. We don't need one more person to go um, and say that we just need, you know, an equitable funding scheme. We need someone to go and say that we need black and brown and queer teachers, educators, staff, bus drivers from the flow up. You know, all that's that ad. That's what I add to and it. And that's good for all the kids, not just for black yes. kids. You oh, think absolutely. It is not something that only black kids need. Like, every child needs to see that, for the diversity and pers that perspective of what this world is. You know, we aren't just one type of people so yeah um, if we had a de-euro centralized curriculum we wouldn't be where we are today yeah if we had more black and brown and indigenous educators um white students and black and brown and indigenous students would be more accustomed to um learning from and finding value mm -hmm. in black and brown and indigenous people um, that permeates throughout our entire society. Our education is the baseline of our entire society. But again, that's why, again, perspective is important because if you're only going to go to Harrisburg to say that we need transportation, that we, that we need economic justice, that we need environmental justice, but you're not going to talk about how for black and poor and brown people that that is cyclical, that that creates a cycle. If you can't see that cycle, then you're lacking in your perspective. You're lacking the equity lens. The Democratic Party loves to say that we need an equity lens, but when it comes time to it, they love to say that black and brown and queer people need a seat at the table, but who's gonna raise their hand and say, I will give you my seat? Ooh. Yep. That's not that's yep. not gonna happen with a lot of people that's at that table. Yep. 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 If you're not going, I don't need to hear nobody else say that, you know, black women need a seat at the table if you're not willing to stand up and go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we're actually doing the reverse with me. The fact that we have like, just like our county executives and high ranking people in our party willing to say that, you know what? I am so upset that there is one fewer person who shares my perspective that we will, that we will try to quench the flame of the only person who doesn't share my perspective. How many people do Rich Fitzgerald need? Yep. How many people of his perspective do we need? Really? How many people do we need in Harrisburg you know, to think the exact same way, to see the world the exact same way, to have the exact same ideology, to have, to have navigated the world the exact same way. How many more people do we need that way? Is one person with a diverging thought that scary? When it's you, it's that scary. Yeah, because you are spreading it. You are, you are making other people step it up. And that, that is, that is scary to them because they know it's a matter of time before we have some more voices up there that aren't like theirs. And right. so we will need to keep these conversations happening so we can continue to encourage other people to not be afraid, to not feel like they have to hold back because they're not 
qualified. How many people just think they're not qualified? And then what Michelle Obama said is, she said, I sat at the table and I was, none of those people were smart. None of them. There's so many tape. There's so many tables where decisions are being made and the people that are making them know nothing. Just like when we see these pictures of, you know, at the federal level, when they're talking about women's health rights and it's a room full of white men, like what? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, how? I used to do a Twitter series, Summer in All White, and I would take a picture of me in a room with all white people. We talk about Black people all the time, though. <laughs> it is just, yeah. So when we, when we continue to do this, because, you know, when, when you ran, when I ran, it's like, well, how did you do, why, what did you, I was like, I didn't know nothing. I just knew what I was eligible. I knew I was qualified, and I was able to get my name on the ballot. You know, and your qualification. Yeah. Or your quality, you are your qualification. That is my last thing. Like the other thing, the last thing that we got to say, like when you're running for office, you know, commit, recommit, overcommit mm -hmm. to being you. Mm -hmm. And that's very hard to do. I was just talking to somebody on the phone it about that. That's very hard to do sometimes because we believe that we have to cosplay, you know, what a politician is. We have been sold an image of what a politician is, how a politician sounds, how a politician acts. And we believe that if we're gonna step into those spaces that we need to be that too. But if that's the case, then we wouldn't need your diversity. Yeah. If we needed somebody, if we needed you to be just like them, then we could just have them. So like, it's hard for us in, in our spaces to come up and step up and say, so I used to be very intentional about stuff like that. I was very intentional about like, when people asked me what my qualification was, not saying lawyer. Like I have a law degree, I have an Esquire. I was very intentional about not saying that because that's not my qualification. I ain't practicing nobody's law firm. That ain't a real qualification. My real qualification is that I was young, black, you know, uh, poor, that I was an organizer, that I was an activist, that I had navigated the world. I was environmentalist because I lived in the Mon Valley and I breathed this poison air. You know, I was an education advocate because I have to fight for these kids in my school district. Those are all experiences. Um, I'm a, I'm a TT, I'm all of those things. All of those things are experiences for us, but we have been led to believe that, you know, we need to just learn a little bit more. So I used to have to say to myself all the time, listen, everybody started from day one. My opponent at that time, he, at one day, he was 20 years in, but he had to start at day one too. And he had to learn from scratch too. And if he is allowed to learn from, from scratch, I'm gonna give myself the grace to learn from day one. Yeah. I'm gonna give myself the grace to mess up. Yep, yep. I mean, every, everybody messes up, nobody is perfect, um, but it is time that we start to understand what we're demanding because, you know, the, the narrative of just go vote isn't enough. Like, it's, it's not enough. We can't just say, oh, it's time to vote. I mean, I think, I love, I love looking back on Facebook memories because, you know, I look back at things from like 2012 and 2013 and it's like, you know what? We were on to something. We didn't really get it, but we were on to something when it came down to like paying attention to these politics. You know, I think, you know, uh, my, my first, you know, my first presidential election, mm, I can't even think back to that far, but when we voted for, <laughs> when we voted for Obama and, you know, all of that was happening, it was kind of like, hey, like, it's, it's not a conversation that I can't be a part of, you know? It, it, it just began to change that narrative of what we always thought, you know? We went through high school under the Bush administration. So, you know, like, okay, whatever. 
but now the conversations are speaking to us you know i literally think my my spark to run was at the end of the the second term of obama and he spoke in chicago and said get a get a clipboard and get signatures and you know he shouted out the, the organizers. Yeah, people don't get that. And then when everyone, they talk to you, all you need is 10 signatures. Sometimes all you need is 10 votes. Yeah, like 10 signatures. So it's like when you, when you make it accessible, when you actually have the conversation and people are like, oh, wait, so all you did was go and get a, a petition and then walk and talk to your neighbors. I mean, there was 10 people on my street that I could talk to and get their signatures. So when we literally tell people the step-by-step on how you get it done, then it begins to be attainable. It's like, oh, wait, well, maybe. I mean, even when we had to get signatures for you, at first it was like, dang it. But then when the people came, I was like, oh, oh, we're, we're, we're about to do this. And then as we kept going and the, you know, from your launch, like if we just literally think back to those feelings that we have when it began to, it be, it, we conceptualized it, you know? We I believe a different world, a different society is possible and you can't tell me differently. You can't tell me different. <laughs> you That's can't. I, I, I truly believe that. Um, we can talk about this for hours. Um, I know y'all got a schedule, I'm sorry. No, we don't have a schedule. This was like, this was my Saturday. Like we are super thankful for you, uh, for everyone that is still on this live, um, Black Political Millennials that Martel and I do. It is a podcast, so our episodes, we currently have 10. This is episode 11 that will be loading up. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor. Um, our purpose in doing this, we're going to have conversations like this all the time. Summer will be back um, because she's summer. And uh, there's other folks in our neighborhood and in our communities that we need to start having these conversations with and asking these questions. And That's true. Um, everything is politics, which means we're all political. Yes. All of us, no matter all of us. If you send your kid to school, it's political. That's so, political. It, the it, system is political. It is so political. And there's some questions in there. You know, Latrenda's always on it with the school questions. And there's a lot that we, there's just so many different things that we need to talk about. And so we plan to use this platform to dissect these different conversations so we can feel a part of them. Um, and also, uh, the more you know, the more confident you feel to uh, step into these spaces. It's, we, we don't see more of us because a lot of us don't know. So the more we can inform you and give you the, the resources that you need to then look at things on your own, because our opinion might not be yours. So we don't expect you to have our opinion. I'm going to tell you my opinion because that's what we started this for. But my opinion should then spark you to think, oh, well, what about this? So we can all talk about it together. Mm -hmm. uh, because if we don't, we're going to stay in our silos. We're going to continuously continue to divide. I mean, our politics are so polarized right now. Um, and that is not good. So we have to begin to, to mend and, and um, listen to each other more uh, because uh, my baby depends on that, you know, like her future. And I refuse. Um, for her to be our age and we talking about this I say that all the time like every generation needs to get better and so it's on us to make things better for this generation coming up after us so they can continue to push us even further um, 
Anybody else have something? Yeah, no, nah, we're um real quick. Also follow us on Facebook, Black Political Millennials. Oh, yeah, uh, we're yeah, follow us. My IG. Um, if you have any questions or comments, any guests that you want to see, any ideas, uh, email us at BPM Podcast. 412 at gmail.com. Um, before we get out of here, one thing that I wanted to do um, is I want Summer, before we get to the game, because we're going to play a game, but I wanted to ask Summer some questions because I feel like Summer, a lot of times when people see you, right, we have to talk about, you know, what's happening or the injustices and in legislation, but I, don't, I feel like people don't really be knowing a lot about you. You know what I'm saying? So I wanted to okay. take time real quick to just kind of just like ask me questions that don't have should to do a politics, but like just about the person, right? Do it. So, you know, like this is black political millennial. So we talk about everything black, everything political and everything millennial. So we're just gonna talk about some black millennial shit real quick. And I just had a first my question. So my first question, right, um, is me personally. I love living single, right? So through this, through this lockdown, I found myself binging hours of living single, right? It's been really good for me. So my first question is, who's your favorite living single character? Dang. Probably Khadijah. Okay, okay. I would say Khadijah. Like, Khadijah has a vision. Look, Khadijah has a vision. She has a plan. It's big as hell. And like, every single obstacle that comes, like, it's financial. Like, every other day, you know, she's, like, capitalism is trying to get her down, trying to get her, 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 her newspaper down, but she, like, pushes through because she is that committed to the vision that she has. So, that's, like, me sometimes, too. So, so definitely Khadijah. <laughs> that was okay. a good one. That was a good one. I Sinclair sometimes, too, though. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> I got some Sinclair in me. <laughs> he was talking about Rose Quartz on one episode. I'm like, oh, she talking about Stones in the 90s, man. She was up on it. So, I, I like Sinclair, too. She was, I, she was definitely ahead of her time. <laughs> um, next question. Um, music. So I know, you know, we've been through this, this quarantine. We probably found some new artists or some new albums or old artists or old albums. So what have you been listening to recently? Yeah, what have I been listening to? So I'm like a weird, eclectic person. So one second I'm listening to, you know, uh, freaking Quincy Jones's Moody's Move for Love. Another second I'm listening to uh, J. Cole, G-O-M-D. I'm not going to say it out loud. But the next second I'm listening to Savage, you know? <laughs> and then also sometimes, because, you know, I got my roots. I got my roots. I do sometimes listen to Kurt Franklin. So <laughs> it's really just where the mood takes me. But um, I have been listening to, I think if I look at, if I think if I pull up my, 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 uh, my YouTube, you know, YouTube will have, like a list of songs, I can tell you. I could. I bet I could tell you the top ten songs on there. It's an Anita Baker joint. It's Luther Vandross. Um, it's Brown Skin Girls. It's Sue Me. I'm rooting for everybody black. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, and then a random gospel joint is in there too. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. No, so um. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I'll let you go. All right. One more. If you had to have, I could. Yo, I'm good at just asking random questions, yo. So, as you want to come, be like, bro, I got a question. Cause, but, all right, so if you had to have an artist and a producer create a theme song for you, who would be the artist and who would be the producer? See, I'm not going to like it because this is where, like, the nerdy, this is where I'm about to lose my, my, my uh, Joe Biden black whore. <laughs> 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 the theme songs of my life 
would uh, definitely be like a John Williams song. And for those, for, 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 my, for my black sisters and brothers who don't know who John Williams is, John Williams is the cat who does the theme songs for all of your favorite uh, soundtracks in Hollywood. So he has E.T., I think he has Star Wars. He has some of the, the, the first couple of Harry Potters. He has Home Alone. So he has, like, literally, if you listen back to all the good joints, it's him. So he is writing my theme song. Um, but it will also be like a musical. I was just about to say that. This you is know it, Ash. You know it. It is also going to be a musical. So it will probably be Fantasia singing it. Uh, it is going to be Fantasia singing it, or it would be one of them Disney characters singing it, because I love me some Disney. So I'm going to go with like Ali'i Cravalho, because Moana is my thing. Um, so it's like, it's like that. Right. Right. Uh, so funny. So, I, so then mine in... in Hopefully you may have caught some. Have you caught any of the versus battles on Instagram? Yes, I see. First of all, I don't think anybody's seen the uh, the Teddy Riley one. That one didn't work. That was rough. Uh, I saw Ndiari, not Ndiari, goddamn, Jill Scott, and uh, okay, I saw that one. I saw. I did not see. I'm not seeing the one tonight because I got other things to do, and I didn't see whichever was the last one. The last one was uh, Nelly and um, Luda. I ain't seen Nelly and them. I watched on live, though. Like, I watched Black Twitter. Yeah. And pulled the responses, but I did not tune in. Yeah. And I look, I'm looking at the time. I hate, 2000s. Like, I I hate 2000s music. The era 2000s was a black hole. Okay. I don't want to go back to 2000s. Ludacris. Ludacris was, we was, we was having fun with Ludacris. I'm a 90s. I'm, I'm not, I live in the 90s. I don't want to go back to the 2000s. So I wasn't with Nelly. I didn't want to watch Nelly. No, it was ludicrous for me because Nelly, Nelly was funny. But no, I'm excited. I'm a, I'm a check on versus tonight that starts at eight o'clock. Um, and uh, I guess the other thing, because I think since we were talking about '90s, um, the last episode of Insecure had Kyla Pratt. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I used to be like, I used to relate so much. You know, I related to Kyla Pratt because I played basketball my whole life. So I was like that little tomboy. Yes. And to see Kyla Pratt on the on, on TV, like yes. I remember the NBA commercials, like the WNBA commercials. Still, like when I saw Kyla Pratt, I knew that wasn't like nothing was wrong with me. I love that. That was a real thing. So, like, I relate to that heavy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I just wanted to touch on that because Insecure this season has been amazing. Yeah, girl, I am Team Molly, our Team Issa. They're both messy and they're going through very real things. <laughs> yeah. People yeah. need to stop saying it's one fault and not the other. No, that's yeah. a miscommunication on both sides. Yes, it is. Yes, it Molly is. Molly was out of control and Issa might have should have punched her. <laughs> She didn't want to mess the block party up, though. <laughs> well, look, they did at the end. That, that triggered me. That was too much when she was up on her face. I was like, come on now. Yeah. Let's talk about triggering. But we don't do that. We don't do that in Braddock. You can't just roll up on me like that. Right. I'm going to just say Before we get out of here, we were talking about black enough and being black. And one thing that if you listen to any of our podcast episodes is usually me and Ash play a round of or revoke so what we fitting to do is you about to just play this around Joe Biden revokes your black card though right. Right. <laughs> he know he's not a gatekeeper of blackness listen he think he is he thought so this is what we going to do right so there's correct answers and then there's majority rules so we got 32 followers on here lip viewers right here so I figured let's play a majority rules game so everybody that's watching you gonna type in a b c or d 
on your on your phone or your computer pad and play along with us real quick. Mm -hmm. uh, with um, you want me to go first, Ash, or you got? Um, all right. So this is majority wins, y'all. According to Mama, according to Mama, right? What's the one thing your grandma always got in her purse? A, gum. B, tissue. C, mints or candy. D, a pistol. So everybody, everybody, you know what I mean? See what we get in the comments. I'm gonna just show y'all real quick, right? Here's the question. According to Mama, what's the one thing your grandma always got in her purse? A gum, B tissue, C mints or candy. Why grandma don't got no money? I don't know, cause you know grandmas be like, "Don't count my money," so we can't yeah. even have a conversation. I mean, but it's in there. It's just not for you to touch. All right, we, we I'm gonna go with C. I'm definitely going with C. Yeah, me too. I'm going with C too. And it seemed like we got people on there. Everybody, a lot of people's going with C. Yeah, it looks like everybody's going. Well, which one was B? Put the car back up. My mom is so cute. Hey, mom. Thanks which for watching. Gum tissue, mint or candy, or the or the or the nistle. My sister Terry said the yeah, My mom, my mom and Terry said B. <laughs> that's because they got a different generation of grandmas. They do, they do. <laughs> that's when they used to have handkerchiefs. You know, you need the tissue for when your kid is at church and they falling asleep and they're drooling. <laughs> that was me. That was me. First, it was the mints, and the men ain't keep me up. All right, let me pour this down. Just, just go ahead and just lay down on the, on my lap. While All right, let me do. Uh, if you I said D, you ain't black because that's a stereotype, and you can't be stereotyping us like that in the year of our Lord twenty twenty. Listen. Yeah. We had, no uh, Biden says you ain't black if you carry pistol. <laughs> we had no D's. Oh, this is so funny. Okay, let's do, we're going to do another majority rules. And, okay, this is a good Money one. from the Brazier. <laughs> this one is good. So, who is most liable to lie about wasting your time? A, pastors. B, job supervisors, C, Negroes, or D, <laughs> <laughs> a new boo. <laughs> so, oh, I'm going right to show y'all the card. Let's, let's uh, see what the answers are mm -mm. as they come in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say A, B, and D. <laughs> Yo. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say A and C just because there's been so many times I've been at church and I've heard the saying that one more We're almost done, y'all. Almost done, y'all. Almost done. I'm about to get y'all out of here. And then you be like, right. Bro, we were just talking about that today when the past when one o'clock hit and you be like, Right. You know the blanket meme where dude be like <laughs> when one o'clock hit and he's still going, you be like, still going. All right, what, what are we getting? There's still answers coming in. So y'all are both, y'all are A, C, and D? I'm A, C, and D. Okay. Because we're going to keep it real. Keep it real. I can waste your time. That is so real. Listen. Oh, in, in, in the tender age? <laughs> how you even do tender when you're a state rep? State Rep Bay looking for a uh, politically savvy young man. Listen. <laughs> 
Listen. Look, so politically savvy anti-capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you trying them at? <laughs> I don't think we can have, like, everybody's, like, they all winning. Like, I think the pastor might have the most. It's the pastor, though. You're right. It is the pastor, though. Pastors, you know, I just didn't want to say it because I'm not getting smut today. Listen. My pet, I, I don't think I saw my pet doing this live, so, but he, look, shout out to Reverend Grayson. I love me some Reverend Grayson. Um, he, he We're almost that. done, y'all. He holds right. it down. We almost done, y'all. We almost <laughs> it's done. us. The answer is us. <laughs> Podcasters, that's who. People in the Zoom era are the ones most likely to lie about wasting your time because we will keep somebody on a Zoom for seven hours. Listen, we look, we wrapping it up. Corona is wasting our time. That's what's wasting our time, y'all. The coronavirus uh, is wasting our time. <laughs> Listen, so I'm going to, uh, we can wrap up. Um, I'm about to stop our live on our Facebook. But again, thank you all so much. Uh, if folks missed it, let them know. This will be put on our podcast stream, so you'll be able to catch this again. I will recommend you watch it in two sessions. We got a little long on here, but it's very good information, so y'all need to share it and listen. And um, thank y'all. I appreciate y'all. Martel, look, we on to something. This is like, I'm excited. Summer, thank you for probing us this morning. Oh, um and we'll see y'all again this is not the last live so we'll be coming back at y'all again especially in this time of quarantine thanks for having me this was fun i did strong on the best out of y'all though i woke up like hey you uh chatting to a podcast today <laughs> he said yes but we've been wanting to have you on so it was perfect timing like we wanted you to be our first guest you know she's like I'm, a, I'm gonna call martel right now <laughs> she's like so how six i was like today <laughs> oh it happened we made it happen, especially with your schedule. So we're glad we could get you. So yeah. for this long too, because you definitely, you know, what I mean, we appreciate. It's you because know. I can't knock on anybody's doors right now, anyways. Yeah, it's super so, hard. If, if, in any other circumstance, I will be get, getting out the vote, which I still am. But like, because I can't knock doors, and campaigning in the Rona has been, it has been a thing. It has been a balance, and even, even up until election day, we'll still be trying to tweak it and figure it out. But. Mm -hmm. So let's say this real quick, PA primary, yeah. June 2nd, right? You should have had your mailing application sent. And if you haven't, uh, votespa.com or I got the number. So I'll be prepared. I'll be having to tell people uh, votes PA hotline is 1-877-868-3772. And I'm going to put it in the group too. So if you haven't got the application, hit them up. Um, yeah. I got some pertinent information about this if you want me to spit it because you know I know it by heart. Go ahead. Listen, the deadline to apply is May 26th. Um, the deadline to get your ballot in is by 8 o'clock on election day. Not postmarked, y'all. It has to be in the hands on by 8 o'clock on election day. So here's the thing. I know a lot of you are, 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 are saying, I've got, I, I applied back in April. I applied in early May, and I still haven't got my ballot. Where's my ballot going to come in? Some other of you may have seen and checked the status of your ballot and it said it was mailed out by May, and it hasn't. Your ballot is coming. Um, I think in Allegheny County now, um, we're up to like 100,000 applied or something. We have, a, we have a large, large, large number of people applying. Um, it is safe and it is secure. Um, they will come. But 
on the off chance that you don't receive your ballot in time, um, especially if you wait until the 26th to apply. If you don't receive it in time or you're afraid that you know, you, you've mailed it and it won't get there by June 2nd, you still can go to your polling place on June 2nd, um, but you will have to vote by provisional ballot, but you will be counted. So vote either way. If you are worried that they have not received your ballot, go to your polling place on June 2nd um, and still vote by provisional ballot. Uh, don't forget that there is only one polling place per municipality. If you need details on that, you can go to the county or you can go to any of my social media where we have the listings of every single polling place in Allegheny County. Um, and I have listed out explicitly everyone in my district. So please encourage somebody to vote today, y'all. Um, that is the best way that we can do this. I know people rely a lot on Facebook, but the algorithm does not care about you. Yeah. Um, so don't rely on Facebook right now. The best way to help somebody and to ensure somebody votes is to call them or talk to them face to face and make a voter plan with them. Um, so please call your seniors, especially if you have someone who lives in a senior citizen uh, building and they're accustomed to going downstairs. Um, they may not be able to do that this time. Let them know how to vote and how to vote by mail. Um, if you are in the church, um, and you a pastor and you sitting on that uh, sick and shut-in list, please share that with somebody. Call your sick and shut-in right now uh, because those are the ones more likely uh, to have to go downstairs to vote or not have transportation. So call them, let them know that they still have time to get their mail-in ballot in. Uh, so please call a friend, text a friend, tag a friend, let them know how they can vote today. Um, you're still black if you don't vote for me. Yep. You know, you're still black, but I would appreciate you <laughs> I, I would appreciate you voting. <laughs> yes, we all would appreciate you voting. And millennials endorse Summer Lee. If you're yes. in the 34th legislative district, we're going to make a post. We're going to make a post. Clocks, I have to say that. And yeah, but yo, thanks for joining us. Black, Black political millennials on Instagram and Facebook. And Twitter, we are BPM underscore 412. And while you're on Twitter, hit me at Summer for PA. That's where I talk all my mess. Oh, they scared of Summer's Twitter, too. <laughs> oh. Oh. All right, bye, y'all. Oh, peace. I stopped, I stopped the live stream. And now I'm stopping the recording.